Stephen P. Fryatt is judge in the senior district in the U.S. District Court in Oklahoma. He is also uh, an associate of the Romanoff Center for Russian Studies at the University of Oklahoma. His new book is Containing History, How Cold War History Explains U.S.-Russia Relations. Welcome, Judge Fryatt. Uh, well, thank you, Mark. It is an honor and a pleasure to be with you. Right off the bat, the Soviet Union ended 32 years ago, uh, officially. People assumed that this would make the world a safer place. But you note that sort of it, it's almost a, a paradoxical, but the two ideologies competing for world dominance during the Cold War actually ensured that certain rules and expectations were in place and fairly reliable, uh, making actually certain, uh, they had certain safety valves that everyone understood. Is that correct? Uh, that's, that's a fair summary. Uh, our, uh, the East-West relationship now is much less uh, governed by anything you could possibly call a real ideology. Uh, at least on, on the Russian side. Uh, but during the Soviet era, and uh, more specifically during the Cold War, uh, yes, uh, it's fair to call, uh, call it rules of engagement. Uh, and former Assistant Secretary of State uh, Eagleburger uh, used that very term, I believe. Uh, and that really did uh, amount to some guardrails in terms of keeping either side from falling off into the abyss. And as we all know, beginning with the nuclear age, uh, the abyss uh, was indeed an abyss uh, in, in every sense of that word. Uh, and uh, so you can think back to the Cuban Missile Crisis or the Berlin Crisis or Hungary or Czechoslovakia, uh, <clears throat> any of those uh, uh, real uh, pivotal events during the Cold War. And you can quickly piece together a picture that shows that, yes, there was some restraint on both sides. And to a, a large extent, uh, ideology was, was in the mix as uh, a restraining factor. Uh, now we have, in my view, a much less stable situation. Uh, we have a personalist leader in the person of Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin in the Kremlin. His only, uh, uh, well, well, let's put it this way, his predominant, by far, his predominant priority is self-preservation and preservation in office. Uh, that drives him to a, a degree much greater than such uh, uh, a, a motivation drove uh, his predecessors in the Kremlin during the Cold War. And in my view, that makes for a much less stable and indeed, more dangerous, potentially more dangerous situation now. You, you, you add the factor early on in the book of cyberspace. How has cyberspace made things more shaky and unpredictable? Uh, mostly because of that last word, unpredictable. We don't know uh, with any certainty. Uh, now, obviously, I'm not within the intelligence service. But my speculation is we don't know with any great certainty what the Russians' cyber capabilities are. And the Russians, uh, I hope, don't know with any great certainty what our cyber capabilities are. Nor do we know what the triggers would be for using those capabilities. 
uh, we can fantasize. Let's let's say that uh, our intelligence services have the ability, uh, with the click of a mouse, to bring the Moscow Metro to a halt. That would be, uh, in a way that we don't probably understand completely, that would be a, a disaster. That would be cataclysmic in Russia. Uh, and we don't uh, we don't know, and the Russians certainly don't know what it would take for us to do that. Uh, and by the same token, not only do we not know Russian capabilities in cyberspace, we don't know what their triggers would be, or how they would use cyber weapons, uh, mixing and matching them with more conventional weapons. One thing we do know, and one thing I know uh, from various sources is that uh, even though we might make light of Russian conventional ground warfare capability, and we'll have to see about that, but even though we might make light of that, we have no basis to make light of Russian cyber capabilities. Hmm. Uh, uh, Russians, especially, let's, let's say Russians younger than 40 years old, are as internet savvy and tech savvy as just about any other population. And uh, we must not underestimate what Russian cyber interference or cyber warfare capabilities may be. The, the unpredictability factor really uh, gets to the necessity of your book uh, because the, the loss of those guardrails, or at least the lowering or widening of them, really increases the burden of understanding what Russia is about, knowing who exactly the Russians are. And one of the first things you turn to is the ethnic makeup of Russia, something probably most people are, are never even think about. Uh, Russians are Russians. What, is the, what are the broad ethnic makeups of, of the nation? That's an important question. Uh, the Soviet Union went out of existence on December 25th of 1991. And by the way, that was not their Christmas. Their Christmas didn't come until January 7th uh, on, on the, the calendar of the Orthodox Church. So anyway, uh, by way of coincidence, the Soviet Union went, was extinct on December 25th of 1991. Overnight, there were 15 nations where there had been one. And importantly, overnight, the constituency ruled from the Kremlin went from about just a hair over 50% ethnically Russian to 80% ethnically Russian. That mm. was a substantial difference. And uh, in terms of Russian culture, uh, Russian politics internally and externally, that is a huge difference. That difference becomes all the more important uh, when you understand that the 20% of Russian citizens who are not ethnically Russian, by and large, live, uh, and this is a bit of an overgeneralization, but by and large, live east of the Urals. And again, uh, at the risk of overgeneralization, Russia is run uh, by people who live west of the Urals in European Russia. And European Russia is overwhelmingly ethnically Russian. Uh, now, there are obviously major players in Russia, including uh, in uh, uh, the, the southern uh, oblasts uh, who are not ethnically Russian. But that, that uh, ethnicity now of 80% uh, of all Russian citizens 
and far in excess of 80% of those who actually run the show in Russia, uh, it makes a huge difference in terms of their sense of solidarity, their reaction to perceived external threats, and uh, in particular, their willingness to endure hardship uh, if uh, to whatever degree necessary to overcome perceived ex- external threats. Hmm. Well, one interesting thing related to this, but also bringing in the issue of historical memory, which is vastly different from the historical memory that Americans have. Uh, the example, World War II. You say that Russians tend to see World War II as a, quote, race war that was raised, uh, uh, that was waged against Slavs, Slavic people. Well, uh, explain that for us. Uh I'll be happy to give it my best shot. Uh, I do address this in the book. Uh, I am not a Hitler expert, uh, but Hitler detested Slavs. He detested everything Slavic. Uh, He wanted to reduce uh, what we will now just call Russia. He wanted to reduce Russia to a German colony, if you will. Uh, There was this German concept of Drang nach Osten. Uh, pulled to the east uh, because Germany uh, has, uh, as long as there has been a Germany as such, uh, we can go back to Bismarck in the 1870s, Germany has felt landlocked and confined. And uh, that feeling of being landlocked together with Hitler's racism, Hitler's uh, hatred for uh, Slavic peoples and populations uh, translated into not just a geopolitical uh, motivation for Hitler's ambitions to the East, but uh, a, if you will, a race-based motivation. And obviously that turned out to be a very potent and tragic combination. Uh, and the Russians understand that. Uh, Russian school uh, students to this day understand that. Interestingly enough, very often in Russia, when uh, you speak to an individual of any age, be it uh, an individual in in his or her 60s or 70s, or even a school student. They speak about the opposition during what they call the Great Patriotic War, and what we call World War II. They speak about the opposition as the Nazis, or the German Nazis, much more often than than they simply refer to Germany. And that is a reflection of the Russian perception which I think was well-founded, that much of the motivation for the attack to the East, beginning in June of 1941, indeed was uh, racist as well as geopolitical in a more conventional sense. You know what you just said a moment ago about young Russians remembering that, that great patriotic war, it's something that Americans, it seems to me, have a harder time to understand. If you, you, if you talk to Europeans or, or, or Russians when, when, when I've done so, something that happened 50, 60, 70 years ago may still be quite alive to them. Well, we don't have that. You know, we, 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 don't, we don't remember the Cold War or even World War II in, in that way. Is you find the same problem? Uh, there's a there's a vast difference in terms of public consciousness of uh, 
World War II, what they call the Great Patriotic War, in Russia versus the United States. Uh, I have, uh, it's been my honor to be a guest in the homes of uh, quite a few uh, educated uh, Russians of middle age and older. And uh, without fail, on the walls will be the photographs of their lost heroes. Uh, and those are very poignant and very touching. Uh, and it doesn't require much uh, by way of a suggestion to ask them to tell you the story of uh, the, the departed uh, ancestors uh, whose photographs are on the wall. There's yeah. not a family in Russia, uh, or if there is, it's, there's not very many, that cannot point to an ancestor who was killed in, world, in what we call World War II. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, the percentages of, of population lost uh, are, are just devastating compared to uh, the percentage of the population of most any Western country. Uh, you refer, actually, um, I was going to ask you about the, the concept of encirclement, but, but I thought I would jump ahead unless you want to come back to that. But you, you, you go to three statements that remarkably were made within 30 days' time. First, Stalin's election speech. Next, George Kennan's long telegram. And then Churchill's famous Iron Curtain speech. How did those, those three statements set much of the terms for the Cold War? Well, uh, you, uh, my answer to that goes back one step to February of 1943. Uh, uh, The Battle of Stalingrad was over in February of 1943. It took several months to get to that culmination, but uh, the battle was over in February of 1943. At that point, and this is fairly well documented, Western powers and military leaders began to worry not so much about how weak the Russian army was, but about how strong the Russian army was and what its potential might be. Uh, at, uh, when the Battle of Stalingrad was over, the Russians, or the, rather the Germans, had no hope of winning, uh, but the, the Russians had to, uh, if you will, finish the job in the East, which took a good long time after that. So U.S. Uh, and Allied military leaders were keenly conscious, beginning at that point, if not a little bit before, that Russia or the Soviet Union was going to be a force to be reckoned with in the post-war world. That uh, obviously uh, rose uh, unmistakably to the surface in February of 1945 at Yalta, uh, and we began to see that uh, Not much had been gained in terms of things like the freedom of of Poland to choose its own future. Uh, And then as we progressed from Yalta in February to uh, Potsdam in in July and August, it became perfectly obvious that a new and very contentious era had begun. And uh, uh, Stalin had certainly had freedom to say whatever he wanted to say in his election speech. He was not going to lose an election by virtue of making a, a poorly crafted speech. He said what he thought, and it, and it certainly portended nothing good in terms of East-West relations. And then along came Kennan's very perceptive long telegram, which, of course, was the foundation for 
the X article and the Doctrine of Containment. Uh, and then came the Iron Curtain speech in which, uh, to use a tennis analogy, Churchill served that ball right back across the net. Hmm. And, uh, uh, and, and the Cold War was on. Uh, it, it's very seldom that a, uh, a historical epic can be traced to events within a very few weeks, but it certainly did happen uh, during those very few weeks that, that those public statements were made. Big question, speculative maybe, but uh, as Stalin, uh, as it become clear that, that Stalin was, was taking Eastern Europe under the Soviet uh, control, do you think he would have pursued farther into Western Europe if the U.S. didn't possess the atom bomb? Uh, I, Stalin, in, in my view, based on my, my research, Stalin was, was, as much as anything else, irritated by the existence of the atom bomb as opposed to inti being intimidated. Uh, the, for Russians then, and I think now, uh, warfare is all about controlling land. Uh, and then when the, when the dust begins to settle, negotiations are based on who controls land. And uh, Stalin, if, uh, if there had not been uh, the atomic bomb uh, in the making, and he was well aware, even before August of uh, 1945, that we had the bomb, yeah. uh, 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 Stalin had good reason to understand that we had the bomb. He had good reason to understand, of course, that there were substantial Western forces in Western Europe uh, on the Elba and to the West. Uh, I think if we had not been there uh, militarily in Europe, uh, or uh, if we had not been there in a way that enabled us to control the, uh, the lands that we did, Stalin would have continued to the West, uh, if for no other reason than for negotiation purposes. And uh, I don't think he would have, was cowed very much by the knowledge of the bomb, but he, he, had, he understood it was there. He understood that, it was, uh, that the development of the bomb was in its final stages uh, in, in May of 1945. And, and, and basically from the beginning of the year, 1945 onward, he had no way to know for sure when we would have a usable bomb. Uh, that had to be in the mix, but I doubt that it was much of a decisive factor. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the main thing in his calculus was how much land can the Red Army control? Uh, the, the Berlin airlift must have been, on, on that score, of maintaining this little piece of land within the... Within the the, the, the Soviet orbit must have been a real irritation to him. Was this the first real head-to-head -head conflict between Stalin and, and Truman, sort of a, a test of resolve and, and daring? How do you rate Truman's performance? You, you spent a lot of pages on, on the Berlin airlift. How do you rate Truman's performance there? He had, Truman had a, a resolve uh, that... Uh, and this is not meant to be a criticism. He had a resolve that really could be called very simplistic. Uh, there was right or wrong, and uh, there was freedom or tyranny. And Truman saw things uh, very much in that light. And uh, so as it happens, this relatively obscure American politician who almost 
by accident became vice president and then president, turned out in many ways uh, to be an ideal counterpart, if you will, to Stalin, uh, because Truman had uh, some bright lines that governed uh, his sense of right and wrong. Uh, he had the, if you will, the intestinal fortitude to back up his beliefs. Uh, he had the, the advice of some eminently qualified uh, military advisors, uh, as well as diplomatic advisors, uh, the likes of Forrestal and Nimitz and Acheson, names that uh, nowadays we, we tend to forget, but boy, they were huge at the time. Uh, uh, yes, I, I think it's fair to say that the Berlin, the Berlin airlift and the inauguration of it was the, really the first head-to-head -head confrontation. Uh, we should be very glad in two respects that it turned out the way it did. Number one, uh, the Kremlin acquiesced in our solution and ultimately lifted the blockade. Number two, that culminated without another war. Uh, and uh, both sides deserve some credit for that outcome. Yeah. Uh, another maybe speculative question, I'm not, I'm not sure, but to go back to the war and the Eastern Front and the Western Front, did Russians believe, and maybe do some Russians still believe, that the allies in the West, Eisenhower and, and uh, the... Uh, and, and Churchill were slow to push toward Germany up through Italy in order to keep draining the Russians on the Eastern Front. Do they? Do uh, they maybe and and maybe, maybe maybe that reflects upon how Russians look at the Ukrainian American support for Ukraine today. Uh, there's, there's no doubt that uh, then and now there was a perception, right or wrong, and that the, the right or wrong can be debated, but then and now there was a perception in, in Russia that the uh, in, initiation of a Western Front uh, and uh, the, the cross-channel uh, invasion, uh, in, in combination, of course, with the, the cross the Mediterranean in, invasion up through Italy, that, that all of that was, uh, in their view, shamefully, uh, sh shamefully delayed uh, so that the Russians could bear the brunt and, and, and wear the Germans down uh, to the point that the, the war in the West would become a more manageable and more winnable proposition. Uh, again, that can be debated. There's, there's, there is evidence of conscious delay uh, in the West, uh, and there, there's also obviously evidence of substantial disagreement in the West as to the timing of uh, the cross-channel invest uh, invasion. But uh, there's there's no doubt among millions and millions of Russians that that uh, the cross-channel invasion uh, was uh, shame shame in their view shamefully delayed, so that the brunt would be borne on the Eastern Front. And that the uh, that the cross Mediterranean invasion was really a, a poor substitute for the full on in invasion that did not happen until June of 1944. Yeah, I'm not sure if you, if you can really answer this, J Judge Fry. If we move to to Ukraine, do Russians believe 
that the American support for Ukraine, it's not about Ukraine. It's not about protecting you. It's just about weakening us. It's just about draining us of manpower and, and arms. Uh, that depends on what Russian you talk to. And let me briefly explain. Uh, Putin now controls many of the channels of information in Russian society. There are some parts of the Internet that he does not control. There are some news sources that Russians commonly have access to that Putin does not control. But in terms of communication with the masses of the, the dogma that it is now necessary for Putin to sell, uh, sadly, uh, my perception based on substantial research and my communications with some of my Russian friends is that uh, a large and growing segment of Russian society has been persuaded in the direction of Putin's rationale for the Ukrainian war. That is a terrible development uh, from, the, from the Western perspective. Now, in the same breath, I'll have to say that that, that perception, that tendency to uh, be aligned with Putin's view of the justification for the war is by and large not shared by the educated urban middle class in the major cities. Those are the individuals who have access to free sources and unfettered sources of information. Those are the individuals who, in the last 30 years, have had a taste of freedom to travel and freedom to study, freedom to communicate. That educated urban middle class is now really uh, pretty well uh, confined, if you will, to uh, muttering to themselves. Uh, the time is not right for anything more overt than that. Uh, and so you have to uh, ask yourself, what stratum of Russian society am I looking at? What stratum of Russian society will have any given view of the, uh, the uh, rationale, the justification for the Ukrainian war? A growing segment, sadly, of the population, uh, one way or another, uh, and, and here also apathy comes into play and, and a certain resigned attitude toward what the Kremlin does in any event. A growing segment of the Russian population appears to be buying into uh, Putin's line, but there is also a significant segment of the population that will never buy into Putin's line. Yeah. And the day, is, the day is coming that there will be uh, a, a competition between those, those segments to see what the future of Russia may look like. Where was Putin in November 1989 when the empire started? What happened to him? Uh, well, he, I would have to look precisely at my chronology, but that goes back to the time that he uh, was a KGB lieutenant colonel in Dresden, as I recall. Yes. And, and, uh, that was probably uh, one of the darkest and most formative days of his life. Uh, the other darkest and most formative days being when he was a boy and he saw the, the, the terrible hardship resulting from the war uh, in, in Leningrad, particularly involving his own family. But anyway, you fast forward from the early 50s to 1989 uh, when Putin, uh, being imbued with the, uh, the Russian tradition of complying with directives from the center, found himself unable to get directives from the center. 
and by his own uh, by his own account in his book, that was a turning point in his life, in his way of thinking about uh, the future of Russia and the posture of Russia in the larger world. Uh, when he could not get directions from the center to his bureau in Dresden, uh, and I think his words were, Moscow was silent. That was truly a turning point in terms of Putin's personal understanding of the importance of ironclad control from the center. And that has governed him from that day to this. Hmm. There's much, much more in in the book. And I, I think that the material you compile is essential for, uh, for Americans to understand what's going on uh, today. But for now, the book is Containing History, How Cold War History Explains U.S. Russia relations. Uh, Judge Fryatt, thank you for joining us. Mark, Mark, it's been my honor to be with you, and I sincerely appreciate the opportunity. <laughs>